to me, creativity is right in there with inspiration, is also in there with serendipity. The things that you can't plan that show up or don't show up and you're not going to and you're not going to be able to control it. You can't control it. All you can do is be aware of it. You can control yourself being aware of it, but you can't control whether or not it's creative or not. And you can encourage your creativity, but you can't force it. Inspiration. Creative people. Problem solving. Imagination. Discovery. Thinking outside of the box. Welcome to Inspiris Audio Magazine, a podcast focusing on creativity, inspiration, and imagination. Hello, I'm Spencer Webster, and this is Inspiris Audio Magazine. My next guest wears many disparate hats. He's a photographer, a writer, a former Boeing engineer, which means he worked on rockets and aerodynamics. He's ridden a bicycle across the United States and strolled across Scotland. He and a friend have their own podcast that focuses on Whidbey Island writers. Whidbey Island is situated in the Puget Sound north of Seattle, and this is where I met him when I began publishing Inspirers Magazine in 2008. He wrote a column for me for which I was very thankful. He still writes and still shoots amazing photographs, but currently his professional life has led him to real estate, which allows him to socialize with all manner of new friends. I'd like to introduce Tom Trimbath to Inspirers Audio Magazine. Ding dong! Hello, sir. Hello. Can you hear me okay? I can hear you fine. Can you hear me okay? I can hear you just great. In other words, we've gone from hello, hello to can you hear me now? Can you hear me now? Exactly, exactly. I have all my questions prepared, but I kind of would like to have you talk briefly about how we met, how you came to be part of my Inspiris Magazine staff. So I'm just wondering, I think I remember... I remember meeting you, I think, up at Greenbank Farm, and I think you had books for sale in one of the uh, one of the local uh, studios. And I'm just wondering, uh, when I met you, you were a photographer, I believe, and a, and a self-published writer. And when when I asked you to write for me, you seemed to just jump right on it. And I'm just wondering, how did you feel when you were when you were writing for for Inspiris magazine for me? Oh, fine. It was fun to be able to write. You know thought pieces about thoughtful things rather than until that point, almost all the writing I had been doing. Well, when, when I was writing at Boeing, I was always writing uh, stuff for technicians and scientists or managers, which of course are different uh, audiences. And then when I started writing on my own, it was almost all nonfiction and chronological and those sorts of things like, you know, bicycling across the United States, that kind of thing. And uh, then when I got the chance to actually write something that was nice, short, and just on one topic was refreshing. So, yeah, I enjoyed it. Well, I really I really appreciated you writing for me and writing some amazing stuff. And I wish <laughs> I had been able to – I wish I'd been able to, like, keep it going financially. I just couldn't – I just couldn't swing it financially. I couldn't print. Oh, yeah. And uh, as I – I I just uh, finished my inaugural episode and recorded the fact that I always I always wanted to bring it back. I wanted to when I, and when I lived in Southern Illinois for a brief period of time, I I realized that audio might be the next thing, you know. And that was before podcasts really kind of took off. And smart man. And now here we are. And I think uh, as I said in my inaugural episode. 
I think audio is the next frontier when it comes to, I mean, I'd recognize that podcasts have been out for quite a while, but I think that if you have the skills to edit and you have the skills to kind of tell a story or, or have a presence, you know, in an audio, in an audible format right now, things are, are looking good. And I'm really, I'm really excited about it. Now I understand that you have a podcast or you participate with a podcast. Can you tell me a little bit about that? Yeah, and we're doing uh, the poor man's version of a podcast. Uh, we haven't set up anything on a platform, but uh, we have a podcast slash blog called Writing on Whidbey Island. And we're doing that because many, well, about the time I was writing for Inspris, you know, there was the Whidbey Island Writers Association, which was this really robust, rich community of writers and editors and whatnot on Whidbey Island had the conferences and all that kind of stuff. And we realized, well, it went away. And that's a whole other story in its own right. It's a case study in nonprofit management. There's a, something that needs to fill that vacuum to give voice to the people that are on Whidbey that are writers and that whole community. And we realized we can't do it ourselves. Uh, the, uh, Don Scobie, who's my co-host and co-producer, realized we couldn't do it ourselves, but we could do one thing. And that is about once a month, we interview some writer or librarian or editor or publisher or whoever and uh, just talk to them for about half hour to hour and a half about what it's like for them to be in that community on the island and then we just put it up as a blog and we uh, put the audio up on the blog as well and just then go out and put it on shared media you know facebook and all that kind of stuff just so folks can kind of touch base and get a feel for the fact that they're not alone and then it's been doing, it's been growing nicely. I'll put it that way. And it, it has a size limit. The island's only so large. The community is only so large. But uh, yeah, it's getting some traction, which is gratifying. That sounds really cool. I'll have to check it out. I I've, I think that's probably one of the reasons too, in addition to the recession, why Inspiris, it seemed to have only a limited, a limited scope. Like I tried talking to people outside of Mount Vernon and you know, Snoqualmie and, and those areas, but it just didn't didn't really take off. And then with the printing costs being the what they are, I just kind of, you know, just put it on hiatus as you're as you're aware. Mm-hmm. I always felt that we needed more positive media. You know, like there's so much negativity going on right now. Oh yeah, fear fear based stuff, and I, don't know, I I'm just not living in my life in a fear based way. So. Um, I, I want to be a positive force, a white light, as it were, whatever, not to be too arrogant or anything like that. But I really want to be a good force, you know, and, and tell these good stories. How have, have, have the writers responded pretty well to your podcast? Like I say, it's, it's growing nicely. And the thing I'm realizing, because I'm watching not only what we're producing, but I also watch what I consume, what podcasts do I listen to, what videos do I watch. And I'm recognizing that if you do it right and you stick to local color, here's what the people are doing on the island, but you also then try to include general themes. This is what it's like to be publishing a book during a pandemic, or this is how much, this is how many times you go through a draft of a book, a manuscript before you actually get to being done. You find that the locale or the theme, the, the central idea of it just gives color to a theme that isn't tied to that region. And it just almost gives it an identity. But the topics can still be useful to anybody who is a writer in this case. Uh, My favorite one, there's a 
a geology professor in central Washington over at uh, Ellensburg. Uh, and he, he just talks about geology of the Pacific Northwest. And he gets thousands of people watching his video because he brings it back to, this is how we look at geology in the Pacific Northwest. And you can hear in that, here's how you would look at geology if you're in Switzerland or Australia. And people can get lessons from it, even though it's not specifically about their mountain. So we're trying to do that sort of thing without intending to. It just kind of fell into it. Here's what it's like to be a writer on Whidbey Island. Well, here's what it's like to be a writer. And that, we find, is, more, is useful because, again, it reaches beyond the region we identify ourselves with. Excellent. All right. I like it. <laughs> well, that's, that's what's important, right? All right, so now... Hey, I'm not getting paid for it, so I might as well enjoy well, it. <laughs> there's, there's that too. All right, so can you give me your one-minute elevator autobiography? Just a, like a one-minute sketch of who Tom Trimbath is. Quickest way to do that. I'll go to my Twitter handle. I am a real estate broker. I got talked into it. I'm a consultant because I like working with people and ideas and helping them get their projects done. I have become a speaker because evidently I don't mind talking and can have a rough time shutting up. A lot of it comes from the fact that I was an aerospace engineer for 18 years at Boeing. So I got to design airplanes, rockets, and satellites, and also try to figure out what had, what went wrong with some of them. Also means I'm an entrepreneur. I'm a writer. I've got two and a half million words out there in articles, blog posts, and books. And I'm a photographer because evidently I can do that. So I've got seven books that way with an eighth uh, coming out soon and a ninth coming along behind that. And then I've got a bunch of blogs because I get used to helping other people set up their websites and blogs that I just kind of kept doing it for myself too. Wow. That's very succinct and very, very full. I like that. Hey, this is one aspect of me as a writer. Give me a deadline and a word count and I'll hit it. <laughs> it may not be as nice as somebody else's, but I can hit word count and deadline. <laughs> If you could go back in time, would you tell yourself, your younger self, to skip the engineer path? And if so, why? No, not at all. But keep in mind uh, that I was an engineer who got to do what I trained to do. I was helping design the next generation space shuttle and design airplanes that were – everything I did was commercial. And that was fascinating work to be doing it. The problem was that I was – 12 years, 15 years out of sync with the, in the, the industry. I was just past the Apollo phase and just before the SpaceX phase. So it was the wrong time to be in there. But I can't say that it wasn't good. It was actually really good. Uh, the only reason I left is because I had enough money to retire. That and the fact that, okay, there were some people there I didn't like. But aside from that. <laughs> <laughs> That's always the case, it seems. But what I would have done is I would have trusted myself more when I was in high school and junior high school when I got my first camera and when I first started writing for the, uh, the school newspaper because I was willing to build my own enlarger back in the days of print, you know, uh, film prints. And again, when I was on the school newspaper, one of the things I did was they said, we need three and a half column inches by six o'clock tonight. We don't care about the topic. And I'd give them three and a half column, column inches. And I just thought that was a fluke. I didn't realize until 2007 that that was a skill. So if I'd realized that in 1977, that would have been decades where I could have developed that 
and given it the proper respect that it was due. And I didn't do that. Uh, I missed that part. Well, doing column inches by by a certain deadline is a it can, it can be a difficult task if you if you have writer's block or if your your topic just isn't as strong or as robust as you want it to be. Or I have I have taught a class or I've proposed a class which is make the white page fear you <laughs> because writer's block is not an issue for me. <laughs> it's just here I'm I'm coming at you. Get ready. <laughs> Do you still teach that class? Uh, I never actually pulled it together. It kind of fell apart uh, because some of the, the weirdness in the world started happening and it didn't have the support for it. But uh, because at that point, what you're having to do is you're having to go into a, a group where there is a there is that phrase, the white, the blank page, the white page, the terror of the, the blank page. You go, no, you don't have to have that. And that challenges a paradigm, to use that term, to say, no, it doesn't have to be that way. And I've talked to some other writers who are who have the similar experiences that I've had, who also don't have that issue. We have, I'll give you an example. And if I'm going too long, just say so. But when I worked at Boeing, I had I got the opportunity, I'd go to NASA for a week, and it would be a week of talking with the techies. I mean, we had a blast. It was just, you know, it wasn't giggles, but it was like we're talking serious issues. How do you make this thing fly safely? But then I'd come back home to my office, and of course, the managers who paid for that trip want an answer as to what their money went for. So within the first two to three hours of that day back, I would have to crank out 500 words explaining why I just spent millions of their dollars. So there's no pause. You have to just sit down and start bashing it out, and then you have to make sure it's in manager speak rather than engineer speak. So I was talking to somebody else who used to work for the State Department. And she was in other countries, and she said we would get somebody knocking on our door like 1.30 in the morning. They'd been, they'd been mugged. They lost their passport. They lost all their money. What are they going to do? And she said we would get six sentences. We'd get 15 minutes to compose six sentences and get the message out to the United States so they could get their help. And, and people get to work in environments like that where you do not have the luxury of putting it down for three days and then coming back to it. You have to produce that. And not as a stunt, but that, that's the, the nature of the job. So for me, what that means is I recognize that I can produce quantity and evidently at some level of quality, but I'm not, I used to dismiss it because it wasn't the highest level of quality that everybody else talked about. But I now finally recognize that also means I can get things done. And a lower quality piece that gets done can have more value than a high quality piece that never gets finished. So that's why I just look at it for myself. The way I put it is they're, they're sculpting wood sculptures that are gorgeous. And I'm getting a couple of two by fours and a nail and a screw and a hammer and a screwdriver and I'm putting things together. <laughs> I like that. I like that. Yeah. <laughs> I'll have to take that for myself. Go for it. <laughs> so, so going back to the space uh, exploration aspect, how do you feel about the current state of space exploration and the recent-ish commercialization of a career you, you didn't get to kind of fully embrace? I wish I could have been playing with this stuff so much we could have been doing this 40 years ago. Yeah, I think it'd be a nice thing to do. <laughs> like one of the things that I, I look at is, you know, Elon Musk sending up a Tesla up out into space, you know, I mean, like, yeah, how, could you have imagined that 20, 30 years ago as someone just like taking a car and throwing it up there? 
only in dreams. I never would have imagined that somebody actually would do it uh, because back then it was very obvious while working in that environment that it was the behemoth corporations and realizing that they weren't going to be the ones that would break through, but nobody had really figured out how to break through. There was talks about how to break through and he did it. And he came at it, not from an engineering background, but from a, an online business background, uh, which uh, I'm, I'm, glad, I'm glad to see it broke through that way. So I don't think it could have happened back then unless the mindset had changed. But the mindset back then was I'm trying to say the simplest way of saying it, but it was still based on the idea that the answer is going to be NASA, Boeing, and Lockheed. It's not going to be Elon Musk. Forget Burt Rutan, who actually ended up being one of the ones that really enabled things. Um, it was going to be one of the major corporations, and that put them into a, a dead end. Wow. How do you feel about that? That's a long story. I could really write that story, but I know there's others that can write it much more uh, clearly. How are you feeling about the current Mars situation with the, the lander and the lander and the helicopter that's flying in Martian atmosphere? And how are you feeling about that whole thing? In 1980, our design project for, to graduate was to design an airplane that would, or a vehicle that would fly in a satellite to Mars, deploy mid-air, and then fly around uh, parts of the planet. And sure enough, I look at that and I, we were actually working the right stuff at that point. We were a bunch of seniors in college and we were working it and I'm so glad to see it now and also realize it took 40 years to get here. Yeah. Yeah. I think one of my re the recent photos right after the craft landed was the 360 degree photo that it took and you could see the Milky Way so clear. I love I love oh, seeing that. Yeah. Hey, but you know, you were talking creativity. And that's the one thing that actually all those things I listed off, except for real estate broker. Almost everything that I have on that list, including the engineering, goes back to creativity. Please tell me more. I want to hear it. We'll be right back after the break. If you have ideas about people I should connect with for inspiring conversations about creativity, please get in touch with me through my contact page at inspirus-podcast.com. And now, Tom will tell us how aerodynamics is imbued with creativity. Well, we don't have a second generation space shuttle because we can't just build the same old one again. You have to think of new ways of doing it. You have to be creative. If what you're trying to do is rebuild the 747, you don't need creativity. If you're trying to come up with a new supersonic transport that actually would work as compared to the previous ones, you have to be creative. So we had a, a number of sessions. I won't go into all of them, but there's one in particular that really drives it home to me. Boeing, in the midst of this whole thing, I finally got them to have a meeting about, you know, why do we have a vertical tail and a horizontal tail? You don't have to have those things. You have them on subsonic airplanes, but you don't have to have them on those, but you really don't have to have them on supersonic. So we finally got a, a brainstorm session kicked in and... They had a rough time shutting me up. They actually closed it down because I came up with too many ideas. We quit at 158, <laughs> which was basically three of us going on for 45 minutes longer than the manager wanted. So we just ended up back with the same thing that they had before. And there's technical reasons why they shouldn't have done that. But, you know, it failed. Idea, I think it was 115, ended up being the one that Richard Branson's vehicle has. The way they steer, the way they pitch over their their flyer is one we thought of in, like I say, 1991. And so the creativity is there. And that's the thing I love about engineering is engineering is not about just doing what everybody else has done. It's you've got a problem. Nobody has a solution. Come up with a solution. And by the way, do it now. 
that has it's obvious how that worked in writing it's obvious how that works in photography in consulting i love that's one thing i love doing is working with other creative people whether they're inventors or artists or entrepreneurs it's like yeah the old ideas aren't going to work let's come up with some new ideas how are you going to do it and to help people come up with their new ideas you know that's a creative process and then of course you know the other stuff i'm creative in my own right so creativity it took me until i retired from boeing to actually realize keep in mind i retired at 38 so this is a while back was to realize that there are a lot of people out there could really benefit from having somebody who not only is comfortable uh, thinking of creative solutions to things, but who's also willing to encourage other folks to come along and encourage their creativity to solve their problems their way. And throughout those whole things, it's just, it's obvious. You look at the innovations that are happening in business and technology now, and it's people that they're landing at rockets on boats and bringing them back into shore. They're launching <laughs> race cars around the world, around the solar system, you know. Is there a particularly memorable solution to a problem that you use creativity to kind of steer in the correct direction? Hmm. There are so many to pick from. And yet at the same time, since we never built the things that I really helped design, it's hard to emphasize any of them. And also partly because those are all Boeing competition sensitive and I'm not really supposed to give any details on them. Fair enough. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. But it is the sort of thing that when it happens and when you get a community around you to support you in that, it is fascinating. It's marvelous. I, I don't like, I, I mean, I'm happy to be creative on my own, but to be creative in a group like that and say, hey, that person's idea that they just said 15 minutes ago over in that corner, let's go look at that again. You find it. That's the thing that made it work. And that's very gratifying, especially when, like I say, when it's happening to more than one person on something that's important. Right. So you know that I used to live on Whidbey, and I know you live on Whidbey, but there are going to be a number of my listeners who haven't lived, had, haven't been to the Pacific Northwest. Can you tell me just like a nugget of what Whidbey Island life is like for you? If I look out the front window, I see the Olympic Mountains and Olympic National Park. Uh, the whales are in town. The, uh, the island is 55 miles long, so there's more than enough stuff to do here on the island. And if you want to go over to uh, Seattle, uh, it goes over to the east side, and I can see the Cascades over there. I can see uh, three volcanoes from there. I can be in downtown Seattle in arguably a half hour to an hour, depending on the ferry and the bus and the, and the train. Where I'm sitting is warmer in winter and colder in summer because uh, the island is around a bunch of water. And... Yet, if I want to go to where they set the record for a snowfall in the year, I can go up to Mount Baker in about two and a half, three hours. And they got 1,196 inches one year. And if I go just 30 miles, I'm in a desert. And if I go another 90 miles west of that, I'm in a rainforest. It's hard to be bored here. <laughs> That's very true. Yeah. Um, when I came out here, because uh, my family was back in Pittsburgh, and they they really, my mom and dad really expected me to stay at the steel mill, become a supervisor, cheer for the Steelers, go to church on Sunday, cheer for the Pirates, go to another church. No, <laughs> uh, but you know it was all uh, church and uh, sports and you know that that community, which is viable. It, it's been there for a long time. But my dad came out here alone to have a man to man to boy talk, 
They went back home. He said, Marty, the boy likes to go hiking, skiing, sailing, bicycling, and running. I don't think he's coming back. (laughs) (laughs) And he was right. Yep. So you mentioned in your pre-interview that you don't try to be creative, but others see you that way. If Nora Webster had asked you to define creativity, what would you say? It gets, what's the term? It's being creative. It is to go, but go to the root of the word, to create. Are you creating something that without your knowledge never existed before? Now, you may create a phrase that Shakespeare created, but to not use the phrase that somebody else has given you, to not use the image that somebody else has provided, to actually think, how do I express this thought. And that can be an engineering solution. I'm going to be creative in the way I put up a hedge, put up a fence. I'm going to be creative in the words, the photos, all these sorts of things, the way I do my public speaking. I'm not going to go off a script. To me, that is creative in that you are creating. And that may be on, is that the ontological, is that the word? Where it's self-referential, but it's to come up with something to yourself is new. And true, if you can. Well, true, yeah. <laughs> well, there's a lot of folks that will come up with stuff just to be, to just get attention. And to me, a truly creative person is not doing it for the attention. They're doing it to express or solve something. I like that. I like it. <laughs> what inspires you right now? I finally figured out the core of almost everything I do is connecting people and ideas. And that even includes real estate. Is here's somebody who wants to live here and they don't know how they're going to live here. It's like, well, let's talk about that. Let's see if that happens. And it's not a sales pitch. It's like, I want to help people. And sometimes that means helping somebody with a book. And sometimes that means helping somebody build a website. And I couldn't figure out what was the thread through all these things. Why am I doing all these disparate things? Then I finally realized it's because people have ideas or need ideas. And sometimes they don't know how to get to the other people who need need those ideas or have those ideas. So for me, that's why I enjoy communication. I'm going to tell you something, and I'm going to tell you that I don't know everything, but I can give you something that might inspire you to talk to somebody else about getting your thing done, or that you didn't realize that what you're doing is excellent, and it's just other folks would really value what you're saying and thinking and doing. Please get the word out there, and I'll help you do that. To me, that's the core. I don't know if that answered the question, but I just ran with it. (laughs) (laughs) No, it works for me. Can you tell me an interesting story about one of your inventions, if you're able to? Yeah, and I'll, I'll typify, uh, to be specific about terminology, an invention is, hey, this is cool, I'd like to do that. And a patent is something that the government has said, yeah, that's valid. I have a lot of, uh, I have a lot of inventions, patents are very expensive. My favorite invention right now that I haven't been able to develop is a tidal power source that does not intrude on the marine climate more than it's already existing. So if you imagine, you know what the tides are like. The tides around Whidbey Island are 12 feet. I'm only 6'2". You put you, you on top of me and we still can't get to the top of the water from low tide to high tide. Okay, this sound is tens of miles long. It's 900 feet deep. That comes in and out twice a day. If we tried to build pumps that did that, they would be big enough to probably power major parts of the world. And yet it's all done quietly and we just notice it in terms of navigation. 
So I just thought, okay, let's just go very local about that and just take somebody that has a dock. Say a town has a dock on a marina. That dock is going to rise and lower 12 feet twice a day. Imagine how big a crane it would take to do that. That would be an awful lot of fuel. Well, how about instead of that, we put an electric generator on some sophisticated, well, some simple gearing actually, on top of the dock. And we don't even have to put anything in the water. The dock is already going up and down with every other, with, with the tides all the time. And it really just captures that power as the dock rises and lowers. I figured that a, I'd have to go back and look at the numbers again, but if the dock weighed about 500 pounds and went up and down about 10 feet, it would power a house. So that's one solution for one small house. But of course, you could park an aircraft carrier out there and that's gonna go up and down with the tide too. And it's just a case of, can you capture that energy that nature is providing without any intrusion into it, except what's probably already sitting there. Wow. Thank you. That that kind of that kind of goes to transition Whitby. I bet you that they would have loved to have that idea back in the old day. It is. There's a whole uh, like I say. I have a number of blogs. One of them is TrimbathCreative.com, and instead of pursuing my inventions anymore, I just put them out there for free. And that way, if somebody well, for one thing, it's because I don't have the money. If somebody could pursue that and wants to pursue that, then why would I want to wait ten years for it to be developed in a world that could use it yesterday? So I just put it out there for free, and I have a whole section which is called Fresh Ideas. Some of them are silly. Some of them are more serious, and, I, and they get traffic. So for all I know, somebody in Israel – matter of fact, there's one in particular that keeps getting a lot of traffic in Israel. It is a way to create a vacuum, possibly create a vacuum in a container without having to use a pump, without having to use heat. It just naturally would aspirate down to uh, at least a partial vacuum which would be very useful if your medication had to be kept in a partial vacuum. It's not, it can't do anything for Corona. It's not going to do anything, you know, with raising or lowering temperature. But, you know, there are drugs out there that have to be kept very, very, very dry. And I, there's a possibility that this thing would succeed. And all you have to do is build a new kind of lid for the container. Wow. Yeah, it's fun to do stuff like that. It sounds like you have lots of fun, that's for sure. Uh, I'm never bored. <laughs> <laughs> I, I think I've heard that before. Yeah. <laughs> My doctor has told me to get bored. But <laughs> <laughs> what What was your first piece of writing that was outside of work that you remember? And possibly outside of high school? Yeah, that would work too. The, the, this is a piece of writing that, that wasn't, you know, for engineering purposes. That was more for your, your creative outlet or... Uh, there's a story that I wrote that was... 8,500 words, and the people involved, uh, it involved a, a dead person, and the widow asked me to never publish it. But I was told it was some of the best writing they'd ever seen me do. Uh, I had to uh, sleep with a dead guy who had died on a trail climbing a mountain, and I just happened to be the only person on the mountain when that happened who had the gear to spend uh, sub-zero, not sub-zero, sub-freezing night uh, on the side of the mountain and watch over the body to make sure that if it was a crime scene, it wasn't uh, wasn't disturbed or that if it was, uh, if a scavenger showed up like the bears and uh, coyotes and mountain lions, that, you know, they weren't disturbed. And that was one of those where it's like, oh, I evidently, I, oh, I can write. Oh, I didn't realize that. Oh, cool. But I can't publish it, unfortunately. Even, even today, however many years later? Uh, it involves three 
nationalities, three nations, a trail on a mountain near the border between the United States and Canada, and a couple of uh, women, one of who was married uh, to the guy that died and one who wasn't. Ah. And only one of them was on the trail, and you can imagine it wasn't the wife. <laughs> oh, no. Okay, well, yeah, I yeah. can understand that. It takes 45 minutes to tell the story. I've actually told the story full length only a few times, but it takes 45 minutes to do it. And I, it's Again, it's one of these that I've been told that if, if I got a chance to do it, it would be a good piece to just you know sell tickets to. But unfortunately, I can't do anything with it. Does that, does that kind of get frustrating to, to have such a, an interesting tale and not be able to do anything with it? There's a braggart side that I always guard against. I have exuberance and enthusiasm, and sometimes that comes across as bragging. I really guard against that. And in a case like that, I really don't want it to be something seen as me bragging about somebody who died. Yeah. You know, I'm, and I'm sure there are some folks out there that would see no problem with it at all. I mean, it was 20 years ago and the people that were involved, I'm 60 and the people were 10 or 20 years older than me. You know, yeah. But no, I'm not going to go there. Gotcha. I'll tell you about it, but I'm not going to give you any details. If so, you know, <laughs> I doubt that. Somebody, I know somebody could zero in on it, but yeah, you know, I don't need details, but it sounds like an interesting story. Mm -hmm. And I'll leave you with this teaser if it ever comes up. Okay. Where the 911 operator got so ticked at me because of what the deputy told me to do that she didn't tell the helicopter really where I really was. So when the helicopter showed up, they were 1,500 feet below me, and I was lucky that they found me. Oh, wow. Did you get to have a conversation with that person later? Nope. Uh. <laughs> <laughs> yep. Oh man. I was not happy with yeah, it. Yeah, I can imagine. I can imagine. Tom will reveal what it means to be a photographer after the break. Are you an artistic person? Are you inspired by new ways of looking at the world around you? I'd love to have you as a guest of the show here at Inspiris Audio Magazine. You know where to find me at the contact page of the show's website, inspiris-podcast.com. Welcome back to Inspiris Audio Magazine. All right, on a different note, uh what does it mean to be a photographer? For me to be a photographer, I found it matches nicely with uh, writing because writing, you're always talking about, you're always writing about the past or the future. You can't write about the present because you're busy typing and you can only be typing one letter at a time. Photography is nothing but the present. You have to be taking that photo now because the move, the sun is moving, the moon is moving, and you can't contemplate it. You have to, you have to act. The one distinction a friend of mine and I both identified, because we, we, we thought we had similar ideas on photography, and then we realized we had two different ways of looking at the world. I try to photograph the world the way I see it. He likes to photograph the world the way he wishes it, was, it would be. So if there's an extra seagull in the picture and it's doing something that distracts, I'm still going to take the photo. He's going to edit it out. And it was interesting. It took us years to kind of figure out why they, why did we do it? We're looking at the same picture and he's complaining, you should have done this. And I'm going, well, I wouldn't do that because I wasn't there. So I am chronicling the world. But of course, there's always editorial bent in that because am I looking at pretty, making it look pretty? Where am I focusing? What am I framing on? And other folks are saying, yes, but it could have been like this. And I wish the world was that way. And that's, they're both valid points of view. Mm. Well, one one is a for me one is a photograph and one is a composition. There's there's a bit of a difference. Yeah. If you're, I mean, it's basically you are painting with light yourself, but that person is really painting a completely different 
picture, right? So if he doesn't find the lighting he wants, he's more likely to go out and get a lighting rig. If I don't find the lighting I'm, I want, I'm going to say, oh, that lighting isn't there. Yeah. And there's that difference. But the other thing, just like uh, I say, I, I nail boards together uh, instead of a wood sculpture. When I'm doing my photography, it is almost all exclusively in long-term format. Many of my books and many of my photo works are 12-month studies. So I'll go to a place for 12 months in a row. I'm not going to live there, but I'll visit it 12 months and try to show what's the story of that site over the course of a year, rather than saying, here's a pretty picture from it. I'm trying to introduce people to a place. And by various measures, I'm successful and unsuccessful. It's not like I'm making money, uh, you know, earning a living off of it, but I'm known for it. So there's something there. Have any valuable lessons come up as a result of you trying that format over the years? Oh yeah, the, the thing that inspired it was uh, one I never wrote a book about, I just happened to go there. I, I wrote about it in 12 months at Barkley Lake, I think it described the situation. Yeah, it's so easy to just breeze right past beauty and nature or interesting things. If I go to the same trailhead, if every August I go to the same trailhead for a hike, I focus on the drive and then there's the trailhead. But if I go there 12 months out of the year, in the wintertime, I'm probably going to be miles from being able to access that trailhead because it's going to be under 10 feet of snow. So I purposely can't, logistically, I can't get any closer to that trailhead. And that means that I've spent more time hiking, bicycling, or skiing along that access road, seeing things that I drove by at 30 miles an hour before. And now I'm going, you know, this would have been a fine place to have the trailhead. This would have been a fine place because these places are beautiful. And it makes me appreciate that much more sometimes just stopping the car in a random spot and realizing that there's nothing magical about being on the other side of the trailhead. There's something magical right here, too. We just happen to build the road longer here than we did in some other places. Do you find that magic is a big part of what is missing from our collective society, as it were? or Not if you live on Whidbey. <laughs> <laughs> Fair, answer. Fair answer. I have never seen – there's only one other place I've ever seen such a marvelous mix of creative, spiritual – uh, passionate people, and to realize that very few of them agree. <laughs> it's all walks of life. Yeah. It's all walks of life. Yeah. 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 And, you know, uh, there are people here that will do the, okay, it's midsummer night, so they're going to go off and they're going to go dance naked in the meadows. Okay, fine. But there are also folks that are going to be saying, it's Easter and this is a devout time. And they are, they're not people on islands. Actually, this is something that wasn't just me. Is I think it was a sociological or anthropological study. People on islands and uh, mountain villages, pieces, pl people, places that are remote, attract people who have decided how they want to live. And they have to make a commitment to living in those communities. They may not agree with everybody else, but the thing that everybody else there has, whether they know it or not, is they've decided to be there. If you live in... A city, it's easy to just because the job changes a little or you just get tired, you move, a, you move a mile or two, you move a mile or two, and you can eventually get yourself into a number of neighborhoods, but each one is just a slightly different version of the previous one. You can, there's all this overlap, which actually has got its own benefits. 
to move to an island, you have to say, I'm going to be on the other side of that water. And if the boat isn't running, I'm stuck on the island. That is something I didn't appreciate until I lived here. And being here, I now would have a rougher time living in some place that didn't have that sort of boundary to it. Partly because, well, I like islands and, and mountain, mountain valleys, but also because that's, that, there's that character of the people as a result. You mentioned in the pre-interview that you, that you found that creativity is more consequential than intentional. What do you mean by that? It's, it's hard to be intentionally creative. And it may be consequential has other meanings. Consequences lead to creativity. It gets into the thing, you know, invention is the mother of necessity. To me, creativity is right in there with inspiration, is also in there with serendipity. The things that you can't plan that show up or don't show up, and you're not gonna and you're not gonna be able to control it. You can't control it. All you can do is be aware of it. You can control yourself being aware of it, but you can't control whether or not it's creative or not. And you can encourage your creativity, but you can't force it, as far as I'm concerned. You can force solutions, but I don't think you can force creativity. Have you ever read any of Terry Pratchett's Discworld books? No, I haven't. Until J.K. Rowling came along, he was the top-selling UK fantasy writer. Uh, he has over 30 books. And he is very, uh, he has fun with ideas. One of the ideas he has fun with is inspiration particles, where inspiration particles are just flying through the universe in uncontrolled directions, no destinations, no source. But if it runs into you, that's how you get inspiration. Now, the man wrote over 30 books. He got a lot of inspiration, but he felt it was that capricious. It wasn't something that you could generate the inspiration particles just whether or not it ran into you or not. I like that idea. And I, I use that in my own writing, actually. I think one of, for me, one of the biggest thrills is, is to be like driving somewhere or doing something innocuous and then have an idea just go boom and write a whole novel in your head. Yes. Okay, now, now to actually get the words down. And it took me a long time to realize the value of those, how uncommon they were, and to learn to respect them. Because it's in there, oh, that was a neat idea, and you just kind of brush it off. Mm -hmm. Because really, in polite society, folks don't want people that just keep coming up with new ideas. It's like, oh, if you put this in this, we'd get, no, they don't want that. There's a recipe for the, there's a recipe for that rum punch. Everyone's going to come up and want that rum punch, so you make that rum punch by the recipe, maybe with a little bit of a tweak. It's get into an artist community. And well, you know, like you said, not just artist community, but you get into a community that wonders about uh, things and values creativity. And the conversations are just way more fun. There's no control on them, but there's way more fun. <laughs> <laughs> the favorite one I've had of that actually was up on one of the few places that is more woo-woo than Whidbey, which is uh, the Hollyhock Resort up in Cortez Island in the British Columbia. And we had a serious debate about whether or not the sun was conscious. This was about 10 years ago. And by the end of that, we'd found, I, I will give myself credit, I'd found a way to measure it. <laughs> and it's, it's basically, yeah, oh, it's a silly idea, the sun being conscious. How could the sun be conscious? Well, if you believe in the Gaia philosophy that the earth is conscious, is a life form, and that is based on complexity, the sun is large enough to have an awful lot of complexity. If there can be complexity generating life here, can there be complexity generating life on the sun? And by the way, that's one of the things that is an implicit core, implicit in the science fiction novel I'm writing right now, is life and consciousness being generated from complexity. Well, I like that idea a lot, actually. That's really cool. 
Yeah, trying to get it actually into something that's entertaining is the tougher part. Yeah, well, yeah. <laughs> when I was in college, I, I had a professor who said, you know, that cows had a bit of, you know, feelings and, and sentientness and why would we slaughter cows? And I was like, cows don't have feelings. What are you talking about? Then you watch a young girl playing a violin at a, the edge of a pasture and all the cows come and they're listening to that music and they're like, what is this? You know, and you're like, Oh, maybe there is some some truth to that, or the the plants are alive mm-hmm. and they have feelings, you know, and they're all family. I watched a documentary when I was in Key West last year or the year before, twenty nineteen, about mycelium. You know, oh, the, yeah. all the fungi, yeah. and the guys from the Pacific Northwest. I, yeah, Paul Stamets, and that was incredible. To, you know, to, to you know, just this idea that we we have no idea what's going on underneath the surface of things you know this illusion is pretty amazing actually so what do the words pragmatic and realism mean to you with regard to opportunity oh nice balancing act dude i like that one (laughs) um if i followed my intuition from some things that uh, came to mind about 10 years ago i would have just quit working (laughs) just basically oh don't worry it's all going to come out okay don't worry about it don't worry about it don't worry about it but the reality is intuition can be very subjective. It's a very objective thing, which is you got to pay bills. And if you don't have any other backup and you're not willing to take the risk of just putting everything on a whim, then you got to have something there. You got to be cranking it out. You got to be earning income or, or at least making sure all the, the needs are met. And that means taking jobs that you wouldn't otherwise. I mean, it's not like I was trying to become a real estate broker. Very good friend of mine saw that I was having a rough time getting a job. I'm overqualified, evidently. They said, well, you'd like to talk to people and you like to solve problems, so how about being a real estate broker? And they uh, they helped make that happen. And that was not based on intuition. There's a little bit of it in there. But it was more uh, pragmatically, I have to do this because there are necessities in this society. And I don't have the courage. I actually just don't have the courage. To just totally trust on intuition. Well, the great thing is that when it's appropriate for you to listen and follow it, you seem to do it. So I take a crack at it. I know others who do much. <laughs> I think you do a much better job with intuition than I do. Oh, really? Yeah, heavens yes. Wait, look at all the places. Look at all the experiences you've had. Look at all the places you've been. That, well, there's yeah, that's that's true. Like when I talked to Jillian, yeah, it's crazy. Like we just we got back to Washington in March of 2020, right as covid is really kind of rearing its head yeah and we got it we got into a house it's been it was a year since then now we own a house yeah and all these experiences that we've been having like 2020 wasn't a bad year for me you know i it also means it's really tough keeping track of you <laughs> well i'm in shelton washington now so you, you, yeah. <laughs> you, you, you can, i'm slowed down for a little bit even though i've got a fast car uh-huh <laughs> <laughs> When we come back, Tom will share with us some of his aspirations that didn't quite come through for him and how this has impacted his life. If you like what you hear from Inspiris Audio Magazine, please consider donating coffee over at ko-fi.com forward slash Inspiris underscore audio underscore magazine. I really appreciate your support. You mentioned aspirations. Do you have any aspirations that you didn't attain that kind of disappointed you that you didn't get to do them? Um, yes, especially from the standpoint of being 62. There's a thing that happened in my life called a triple whammy. 
that's where I lost the 98% of my net worth. Because of that, there are 10 years of experiences. They weren't exotic. They were just hikes and skiing and cycling and things like that that I couldn't do because it costs money to go to the mountains. I re regret, that's the best way to put this without violating somebody else's privacy, but I lost uh, almost that much of time because I didn't follow my intuition because I did what folks told me I should do. And by doing what I should do, I lost, again, about that many years ago, that many years as well. So effectively, you're talking, I'm 62. I lost about 20 years because I didn't follow the intuition. And I'm now at 62. I'm going, okay, great. I might be able to hike to when I'm 60 to 82, but it's not going to be the same experiences that I just lost out on. And that has been, right. you know, Frank Sinatra, I, you know, I've got revets, but, you know, so few. It's like, no, I got a bunch of them. <laughs> uh, yeah. 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 Hey, I kind of have a general idea of what you're saying because I have a, an adventure motorcycle now. I was supposed to be going up to Alaska with my brother riding from here. He lives in Illinois. He was going to come here and then we were going to ride up to Alaska. Well, now his health isn't good anymore. Yeah. And now COVID's struck. And like, how, how long is it going to be before other countries are are capable of having international travel? Yeah. And that was one of the things I was going to go, I was going to circumnavigate. I'm now 54. That could be three years, 60. Like I could physically do that, but how much would it take out of me to ride a, a motorcycle and camp on the ground? Mm -hmm. I don't think it's, I don't think it's realistic anymore. I wanted to be, a, I wanted to own a sailboat once upon a time and, and, and do that. There's so many things that I, that age is just this inevitable thing that I don't know. I'm, you know, I don't know if it's wise to go. And that, prag that pragmatic thing you were talking about, that's where the pragmatism. Yeah. And the realism does come in, in that there's nothing to say you're not going to live another 50 years, but do you want to wait 49 years to go find out that you weren't, you know, you're working on something else and I'll get to it eventually in 49 years from now. You, you, you can't count on that. Well, that's why this podcast is, has, has really struck at, at the core of, of what I'm supposed to be doing, I think. Cool. I think that I'm supposed to be doing these interviews and telling these stories because it's... I don't know. When I became a journalist in the Navy, I felt like I found my thing, you know? And now this is a variation on that. As, oops, you know, I'm messing with my microphone. Reality. <laughs> yeah, exactly. I find that, you know, that gets back to your intuition. You know, are, are you willing to take a breath and do what needs to be done? You know, because happiness is something that's uh, on a scale. It's not something that you have it or you don't. It's it's one of these things that you might be happy one day, then you might be a little bit sad the following day, but then you might find joy in a tree or mm -hmm. up on a mountain trail. or So I think it's a continuum, honestly. And I have felt that these moments where I get to talk to people, my friends, I call you my friends. Yeah. You know, how, how amazing to be able to have a conversation with and get to know you that much better, you know, and... I'm, I'm doing what I'm supposed to be doing. And by the way, you know, what you just mentioned about inspiration and reality and aspirations is something that I wouldn't have put it in those terms. But in 2000, I bicycled across the United States, ended up writing a book. I hadn't written a book before. I ended up writing a book, Just Keep Pedaling. Ten years later, I ended up walking across Scotland. 
wasn't intending to write a book. Something happened along the way. Life-changing. Wrote a book. Well, uh, 10 years later, I should do another trip. And that would be the fall of 2020. And I can't do that. And here I am lamenting the fact that I haven't been able to go hiking and skiing and bicycling and whatnot. And what I'm realizing and what I'm challenging myself, and I do not have the answer, is are those things that I'm missing, are those things that I'm looking forward to going back to, the aspirations that are realistic 10 years after having walked across Scotland, 20 years after having bicycled across the United States, should I have those same aspirations? Or should, am I blocking creativity and intuition into finding new aspirations because things are going to be so different? Is something better going to happen and I'm blocking it? Or am I respecting the fact that I value being in nature the way, in those ways? And I don't have the answer yet, but that's where I'm sitting with it. Well, I think you and I kind of go to the same place of being just in the same, in the present moment, actually being in it, you know? That's one of the things that I, I have come to define prayer as. It's not uh, asking the creator, God, universe for something. It's being grateful for what you have, even if you don't physically have it in your grasp at this particular moment. And I'm very grateful. I'm grateful for having a house and having the ability to now be able to purchase things and be able to communicate with people and and tell their stories. You know, I'm, I'm grateful for this. I'm grateful for you, you know. Thank you. And, I mean, it's. I'm uh, glad you're doing what you're doing too. Awesome. So, can you tell me a story about Lao Tzu's teachings that made your life fuller or better? Oh yeah. If you un- if you explain it, you can't understand it. You don't understand it. If you explain it, you obviously don't understand it. If you understand it, you obviously can't explain it. And to take it back to a more scientific uh, and an anthropological point of view, our language and our senses cannot have all the tools and resources that we need to adequately perceive reality and understand it. Just because we have these senses doesn't mean there aren't five more that some other animal has or that would be necessary to survive in some other part of the universe. Language is limited by the characters and the letters that we use. So there are certain concepts that are possible in symbolic languages like Chinese that are not possible to translate into character languages like English, simply because they can have a, an idea and an icon that can't be expressed any other way, and we try to put it into an alphabet. But at the same time, our alphabet can describe things by creating new words based on those letters and words that may not be as readily translated into a symbolic language that has a fewer set of, uh, of words. Do you have do you have any kind of example of this situation that, that is meaningful to you? It gets back to there's two individuals I know that the one will uh, pontificate on philosophy and the reality of the world at great length. And I get the feeling he's missing something. And there's another guy who's incredibly quiet who just every once in a while just comes up with a bit of prose in a haiku that just is indescribably good. It, it's a sort of, I think that's a conversation that's, to put it into a simple answer, you get that kind of thing. And then to go the next level down takes another hour and a half. We're in this universe and we just happen to be halfway between the, the infinitely large and the infinitely small. We just happen to be in the middle of that. If the gravity turned off, you could fall for billions of years and not run into anything. 
And yet what we're standing on, which seems solid, is mostly empty space, and we don't fall through it. Isn't that crazy? Yeah, and people get bored. <laughs> yeah, well, you might enjoy a book that I read in college that I still uh, quote on a daily basis practically, and that's uh, The Holographic Universe. Oh, okay. And that that book was incredible, and it helped me realize that, yes, there's more space between atoms than, than solid. Like, you should be able to put your hand right through the yeah. table or yeah. whatever, you know. Well, why can't we? Well, it's a matrix. Okay, but still. <laughs> why? All right. Well, that tells me that we're an illusion. We're we're in a hologram and, you know, the nature of holograms. Uh-huh. Yeah. Yeah. What is it? There's a – they figure there's at least an 80% chance that you're living in a simulation right now. That's why the Matrix movies were so revelatory to me because, they, you know, it was very fantastical, those that, that set of movies. But they, they were speaking to philosophy and they were speaking to – the nature of reality and what is reality. And a lot of people, I think they don't get beyond the surface of things. I, they don't, they don't uh, oh, yeah. look between the atoms, you know? Yeah. And yeah, really. So I really appreciate those ideas. Yeah, there, uh, for those who, for those who are listening to this or this transcription or whatever, uh, if you are interested, there's the, not only is there a director's cut, uh, the director's voiceover of the movie for the first movie, but there's also a philosopher's one which has Cornell West and a couple other philosophers talking about the concepts that are rolling by in the first movie. Yeah, I really enjoyed that. I actually bought when I was in I was in Guantanamo Bay and I bought the it was a 10 DVD set and included that. Yeah. I really really enjoyed that a lot actually. Yeah. Simulacrum and and all that stuff. Yeah. Yeah. After the break, Tom will tell us what books he'd read more than once and why. Please consider subscribing to Inspirus Audio Magazine. Not only will you earn my great appreciation, but as a thank you, you'll receive access to content not found in the episodes. You'll also receive advanced notification that a new episode will be released. You can subscribe at Inspirus Audio Magazine's website, inspirus-podcast.com. So what is a book you've read more than once, and how? what, what are the changes in your perception and what has taught you? Oh, I mentioned Terry Pratchett. I'll go back to it again. For those who've never uh, read it or heard about it, a lot of fantasy novels are based on medieval Europe. So there's castles and knights and kings and queens and all that kind of stuff. Maybe some dragons, or they may be based on Tolkien, which is, you know, orcs and dwell, dwarves and whatnot. He has that. But to have fun with the reader, and this is, these are humorous, but they're also very thoughtful. The world is flat. It's a disc that rides on the back of four elephants that stand on a turtle that is swimming through the universe. So he went to Mesopotamia and started playing with that worldview and then put the medieval European worldview on it. And then certain books go off into China and Aboriginal Australia and he has witches and wizards and whatnot. I have found in amongst his humor, he has some of the, he plays some of the deeper ideas. For anybody who wants to research it, what I suggest is going and finding the clip on YouTube for one of his books, which is called The Hogfather. It's a Christmas tale. The Hogfather, to give you an example, instead of Santa Claus with eight tiny reindeer, the Hogfather is a hog farmer, kind of, who has four enormous hogs pulling his sled. (laughs) 
And in the midst of that, at the, near the conclusion of that, he has this wonderful piece from a monologue from Death. And Death is a character who has, what a surprise, a very dry sense of humor. And he analyzes the fact that justice is a fiction and a lie that humans must have to be human. So he takes this idea of considering what justice is philosophically in a story about a hog. <laughs> and he does that in 30 of his books. His 30, 30 of his books are like that. He's a good one if I want to think and laugh at the same time. I, I may have to read some of his books. I have never read any of them. If you just want to skip to the front and get sucked in, The Color of Magic is the way to start. Okay. Good recommendation. Uh, yeah. Yeah, and uh, and like I say, until J.K. Rowling came along, he was the, the most popular UK uh, fantasy novel uh, writer. Uh, for more current uh, thought-provoking things, if folks are thinking about where technology is going and where society is going, Anne Simmons is a series of books that I would like to reread, S-I-M-M-O-N-S. And uh, without getting into all, of, all the details, his is deeper, there's no humor, but uh, he postulates a world where artificial intelligence and human development have progressed to the point where humans and computers are basically a continuum. And some of those entities become powerful enough to effectively be gods, where a lot of folks have decided not to go that far. The setting for two of his novels is basically the Iliad and the Odyssey, because some of the more the gods got tired and they took a bunch of humans and they made them act out the Iliad and the Odyssey, but with the capricious nature of modern gods rather than the historical ones. So he plays some ideas there, which are affecting my view on how the computers and people and their interaction is going to progress in terms of, not in terms of technology, but in terms of society. And that's really thought provoking, but their books are enormous and deep and heavy. Do you think we're going to get to the, to the singularity that Ray Kurzweil and other people have been talking about, where they, uh, yeah, I've looked, I've been following that. Actually, some of the folks that actually have helped organize Ray Kurzweil's information live on Whidbey. The uh, the close, I suspect twenty forty five, and I suspect it is going to happen in ways that, for one thing, a digital singularity for folks who aren't familiar with it, this sort of thing you can't predict. It's like uh, being in 1776 and trying to imagine what life would be like after the transistor and the digital singularity would be that much more dramatic. And it ostensibly could happen inside of a few minutes rather than a few decades. Yeah. Uh, I'm prepared with the idea for the idea that it could happen as, as soon as 2045, if not sooner. A lot of other folks are saying it's 2100. It's really interesting because I'm, I'm younger than you. And, and before I go any further, and that's actually one of the part of the backstory for the science fiction book I'm writing. Ah, oh, sweet. Oh, I definitely want to read that then. I grew up on computers. My dad, he bought a, a little teeny tablet computer called the Timex Sinclair. Oh, yeah. And you plug it into your TV and you learn basic programming. And he taught, yeah. us, he taught us basic programming. And then CDs came out with music on them, obviously. He said, you wait. These will be in computers one day, and w everything will change. Because back then it was five and a quarter. Well, there was eight inch, then it was five and a quarter, then it was three and a half inch floppies, and and you know we were programming stuff on uh, 
we were programming s- stuff on on uh, cassette tape, right? We were doing, yeah, you know, I, I had that. <clears throat> and so, you know, and now look at, we have a, a computer that's more powerful than the lunar lander in our pocket, you know, and so. And by the way, to bring it back to writing, the first technical manual that I wrote was not an assignment. It was just something I decided to do. And it was for how engineers could log into the flight. We, were, we used to help build this flight simulators for Boeing as well, and my, amongst everything else we did. And it was how to log into the flight simulator so that we didn't have to drive from Everett to Renton. We could just port the data across at 300 baud. And nobody had written down the instructions. So I just, I wrote them down and they were still using the documents seven years later. And at that point I was getting, I was getting thank you from brand new employees who were saying, you know, they didn't have anything else and this is great. And I have to admit that was one of those things where I kind of went, well, maybe I can do this stuff. But at that point, it was limited to, well, maybe I can write about, you know, procedural stuff and things like that. But yeah, there was a time limit. There was a 300, meg- uh, 300 not megabot, 300 baud per minute, uh, per second, that is. And uh, above a fir- certain file size, it just made sense to throw it on a nine-track tape, throw it in the car and drive down there and drive down, what, 40, 50 miles. Well, now you can't go through life without uh, gigabytes per second, right? <laughs> you just... Yeah. Yeah, I'm at, um, I signed up for one gig, but I'm only getting 300, 300 meg. <laughs> this audio file by the time it's said will be more, well, more than a gig, just the audio file itself. So, it's... oh yeah. So how do you know when you've written words that work well together? When somebody tells me they worked well together. Well, wow, that's easy. Seriously. <laughs> well, uh, the, when I'm in journalist mode, if I'm on deadline and word count, it's usually on a very constricted deadline and word count, in which case I just rely on the editor and the public. Uh, if it's in a book, after my first book, I realized that I want to be able to read my book out loud at a public event without having to edit it for the audience. So one of the final things I do is I'll go through and I'll read the book out loud. And do does it come out orally as well as literally? I know that, and I know how that works too, because like I'm going to be narrating my my novel. Oh yeah, and it does change how you edit the piece because it doesn't sound as good sometimes when it's just written down, right? Right. You know, you have to you, you have to do words work well in such a way that it that flows off the tongue without tripping yourself up, right? Yeah. So. Yeah, and I didn't understand that. Until the first time, first few times I actually did a book reading and actually read from it. It was like, ooh, that's not good. And yet, that's still my best selling book. All right. So, uh, the final regular question is what is the importance of doing? Also, not doing? Uh, to find a balance between doing and not doing. If all you do is to consider and think and consider and think, oh, that's how Rene Descartes ended up in the situation that he did when he said, I think, therefore I am. He got himself so wrapped up inside his own head, he had to find a way out. If you never go inside your own head, you're just living habits and what people other people tell you to do. Because they're the ones that are giving you your roles, your values, your judgments, your shoulds. But if all you do is sit inside your own head going, what is truth and what is beauty and whatnot, and you never actually experience anything, then that can totally be an illusion and a fallacy. And I think you got to do a bit of both so you can kind of go, what's really me? And what do I want to do? And that is very, very much so 
what's been going through my head uh, as we're coming out of the, the back end of this pandemic. Well, I have something that's probably less important. I go through periods of time where I play lots of video games, and one of them is a racing car game. And I, oh yeah, I built this this simulation pod, and I had a steering wheel and a shifter and all that kind of stuff. And it was right about the time that I was getting my adventure motorcycle, and I realized, you know, it's fun to play this video game, but I'd rather get out into actual mountains on my real motorcycle, and that's what I did. I put the motors, the game away for a little while, and I said, okay, I'm going to go up and explore the mountains, you know, uh-huh. <laughs> and that gets to that. Sometimes you have to get get out of your head, like you said, and actually just go do, and that again, that's what this podcast is like. I've got to get a website made, and I've got, there's like, I've got a task list of things, but actually interviewing people is like the first step. If I do one step a day, yeah, I'm making progress. I I can't just be like thinking about doing a podcast because it'll never get done. Yeah. Yeah. You're doing it. You're good. Yep, exactly. All right. So now is the rapid fire questions. What are you curious about right now? How we're going to get from here to the digital singularity and get beyond it. Good answer. Invisibility or super strength? Invisibility. Why? Because super strength, usually folks don't realize that if you push on something, something else has got to push back. And if you're able to knock down a building by pushing it one way, you just ripped up the ground underneath your feet. Ooh, hadn't thought about it that way before. That makes sense. Read uh, Man of Steel, Wound of Kleenex. <laughs> okay. What do you miss most about your childhood summer vacations, not having them now? Nothing. Nothing. Wow. That's a pretty defined answer. Yep. <laughs> thought about that one a lot. <laughs> okay, then. We'll have, to have, we'll have to come back to that for another topic at some point. That involves a couch or two bottles of wine. Okay. I'm there. I'm Either there. be a psychiatrist or a drunk, one way or the other. <laughs> if thoughts become things, what did you just create? Opportunity. Okay. You're on a train trip across the country and can only bring three things. What are they? Oh, I've already done this. A bottle of whiskey, uh, William Shakespeare, and something for uh, electronics. Okay. All right. How can people find you and your work? Lots of different ways, but the easiest portal to come into is either trimbathcreative.net, which is basically a blog, but everything branches off of it. Go out to Amazon, and I've got an author page that leads you to my books and and everything else. Or if you want to come in through social media, Twitter, at T-E-T-R-I-M-B-A-T-H. Okay. Is there anything that I didn't ask that you would like to close out with? An hour and 45 minutes in, there's always more, but I think you've got enough. (laughs) All right, cool. Tom Trimbath is one of those people you meet who is effusive with energy and humor. He gives of himself to the community around him, and the community is stronger with him in it. We spoke about island life, science stuff, and how he got started in writing. But there is a whole bunch more to this gregarious man, but as he said, an hour and 45 minutes, edited of course, is enough. If you'd like to have a conversation with him, go follow him over at his website. I'll have that web address in the show notes. Inspira's audio magazine is produced by Spencer Webster and SP Webster Press. Music is provided by Leland Hirschman, and intro narration is provided by Mackenzie Webster. And remember, creativity is in your future.